Hello and welcome to Broadband. I'm your host, Denise Kowalczyk. The show is part Feed Your Soul, part Food for Thought, a podcast that features personal wellness tips and information because you need to take care of yourself in order to take on the world. On today's show, my guest is Wendy Sachs, author of How She Really Does It, Secrets of Successful Stay-at-Work Moms. Wendy is an Emmy award-winning network television producer, a former Capitol Hill press secretary, and editor-in-chief of Care.com. She recently released a new book, Fearless and Free, How Smart Women Pivot and Relaunch Their Careers. We caught up on the phone to talk about her research and all these great ideas that she came up with to help women navigate the new job market. You know, I was so excited when I spotted the book in Oprah's magazine, and you were so generous in responding so quickly. So thank you. Oh, well, thanks for finding me. You know, I read it in two days, and not like in 48 consecutive hours. I squeezed in every moment I could to read the book and did it in two days. I mean, I, you know that expression, you know, you devour the book. Well, I did. So... Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's, honestly, that's the best thing you could tell me. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Well, when I saw the title um, from, you know, my own personal slash professional perspective, it really resonated with me. And plus, a lot of people, a lot of women that I talk to are, you know, facing um, really tough uh, decisions or tough options regarding professionally, you know, where they want to go. And so I've been telling everyone about this book, and then we'll be sharing this interview with everyone and their mother. So I do want to apologize in advance. I probably have about 20,000 questions to ask you, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I won't have enough time to do that. So Okay, we'll start. (laughs) I've got all the time in the world. Okay, great. I'd love to hear the questions. So I just wanted to start off with you uh, with this question. Um, what was the aha moment, if you will, that moment where you're like, you know, I have got to write this book. I got to get all this stuff together because it just had, you know, sort of like walking into a brick wall in a sort of pleasant way, if that it can be pleasant. Um, when you realize, you know, you had to to get this story or this information out to the world. Yeah, you know, I mean, really the, the genesis of Fearless and Free comes from my own personal experience of losing my job. Mm. Um, I was over 40 and working as a full-time freelancer, which was sort of strange, but I feel like that's the way that everything is these days. And I was told they didn't have the budget for my position anymore. Mm. Um, and I, you know, my industries have been media and news and journalism and communications, and all of those industries have really been disrupted over the past few years. And the idea that I'm out of a job, I'm over 40, and I'm now scrambling, and I started interviewing at, you know, what I call, like, the bright and shiny startups in New York City. Mm -hmm. And everywhere I went during this, like, one period of time, it seemed like everyone who interviewed me had graduated from college in 2009. (laughs) And I would do the math on that, and I realized that all of these hiring managers were, like, like 27 or 28 years old, and I was ancient. And here I was trying to shoehorn myself into some positions and, you know, talk the talk. And and it wasn't that I didn't have the skill set, and it wasn't even that I couldn't necessarily fit into the culture. It was just that the landscape had completely changed, and there was all these new companies, and what I did for a living had now been changed from, like, writing into content and, like, Mm -hmm. all of these different things happening out there. And after one particularly depressing interview, 
um, where I handed my paper resume and the bearded millennial who was interviewing me sort of scoffed at the paper and said, you know, we don't kill trees around here. We only do digital resumes. Did that happen in Portland? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it happened in it happened in New York City, and you know it was like this cliche. You know, the dog roaming through the office, and the kale chips, and the coconut water, and all of that. Which, by the way, I'm totally down with taking your dog to work, and I am like a big fan of coconut water, and all of that sort of sits really well with me. Mm-hmm. But it was like he couldn't get over the fact that. I had worked on Capitol Hill as a press secretary, which to me had always been like this entree into big careers. People love that. And, you know, I describe that sort of Capitol Hill experience as, you know, that was like the Google of the Gen X generation. Mm -hmm. And But he said, you know, around here we don't hang up on the media. We have really good relationships with journalists. And I thought, you know, I'm not a character in the House of Cards or Veep. You know, like, the, like I was begging reporters to talk to me. I wasn't hanging up on anyone. Wow. Um, so I had walked out of that interview, and it was at that moment that I thought, you know, I need to reframe my own narrative. I need to figure out how I'm going to sell myself, and I need to change things up. So it was over that period of time where – I was really noodling with this idea of writing this book, and I just knew that there were so many women in my position. I mean, men, too, who lose jobs and feel aged out. But there's definitely, you know, a gender divide when it comes to how we look at confidence and how we talk about ourselves and how we network and how we get out there. And that was something that I really wanted to focus on, and that's what I talk a lot about in, in the book. You know, I was talking to a friend prior to coming into the station to talk with you today, and, you know, she's a woman... 40 and above, and is having a dickens of a time trying to find a new job. Whereas our unemployment rate, I believe nationally, certainly in Oregon, is the lowest it's ever been ever. And um, trying to, you know, wrap your head around like, well, wait a minute, I'm qualified. There are jobs, but why can't I get one? So um, I did read a little bit of your Times um, article. Uh-huh. About um, ageism. Yes. And it's uh, it's really fascinating. I mean, I'm a woman of a certain age. I'm in my 50s and was out job seeking about a year or so ago. And it was a really fascinating experience and trying to navigate. Well, I know I have the skills. Is it a fit thing? Is it a gender thing? Is it an age thing? Because you just can't really grab a hold of it so much. That's right. I mean, and it's something that is happening younger and younger today. And, you know, the whole sort of culture of the workforce has changed. We're also disposable today mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, I certainly never felt that way in the first, you know, in the many jobs that I had had. But now things have really changed to, to the whole gig economy where people are not expected to stick around for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're expected to sort of like burn through your employees. Um, but at the same time, they want, you know, you to be working 24-7, but there's no reciprocity when it comes right. to that job loyalty anymore. You are so on it. And I have a, a related question to that. I mean, I talk to my peers, 40 and above, 50 and above, um, mostly 50 and above, and they start talking about, you know, I just want to get my next job and coast until retirement. Mm. And I kind of am a little puzzled because I, I don't think that retirement is part of my generation. <laughs> You know what I mean? In the traditional sense, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not going to get my pension. Right. I'm not going to buy an RV or a house in the Dottie Das, right? Right. I mean, how, I mean, does retirement exist for, you know, most of us? I don't, I mean, I can't even imagine. It feels so far away and not because of an age thing, but just from a financial Mm. security Mm -hmm. 
you know, people are working later and later. And the truth is, is, you know, we want to stay creative. We want to stay working. We want to stay engaged in the workplace. And we just are trying to figure out how to do that. You know, we want to be compensated for our work. We want to be valued in the workplace. So I don't think too many of the people, certainly none of the people that I'm really you know, associated with right now are thinking about retirement, I think we're all just trying to stay relevant and we're thinking about how do we get a job and get compensated for our experience um, or how do we go out on our own? How do we become entrepreneurs? How do we launch our own businesses? How do we take our skills and transition them into ways that will keep us fulfilled and make some money? Have you thought of doing like workshop series, webinars or anything based on your book? Um, I have actually, and you know, I do do a lot of public speaking now around the book, and so they're more conversational rather than workshoppy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I've definitely considered that, and I've been approached about about doing some workshops. Okay. Well, I want to mention that Fearless and Free: How Smart Women Pivot and Relaunch Their Careers is chock full of so many delicious morsels from, you know, how to reframe or re pitch your own story um, to um, all kinds of um, approaches to how we can help each other, we women. Um, One thing that I loved you citing uh, was the confidence code, uh, the science and art of self-assurance by Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman. Um, I read that book, I don't know, about three or four months ago, was totally struck by Wow, <laughs> they hit so many nails on the head. And I just want to just touch a little bit on that. Because when I talk to my women friends about language, right, vocabulary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I by the way, I downloaded that app, that Gmail app. Oh, you did. That's fantastic. <laughs> right. That's and great. it is and um, I'll put a link on our uh, show page about it. But basically, it, it's sort of like um, Grammarly, right? It just says, hey, you it's made a, a little check for sorry. Exactly. <laughs> all those shrinker words. Or just, just, right? The actually is in the am I making sense? All of those words that we put in that diminish our power, really. I mean, we think that they're going to be a little breezy and they're going to soften our tone. But at the same time, they're really making us a lot less direct and a lot less powerful. And you were talking about which... um it cracked me up, which is, uh, I think, under your section, don't dilute your message. Right. So you did some quotes, you know, that are really powerful. But if a woman said that. <laughs> a woman said it. Yeah, that <laughs> came from um, Alexandra Petrie from the Washington Post. Yeah. Who was doing a spoof on famous quotes, you know, Martin Luther King and, you know, all these like big names. But if like a woman said it, you know, how we're going to sort of, you know, try to, you know, just and actually, well, I'm sort of thinking about this. I've got this idea. I don't know what you think. You know, we, we like completely play down the power of the language because oh, we just want to be liked and we don't want people to think that we're too bossy or too abrasive or, you know, a bitch, you know, yeah. so we use all of this language and we change our tone because of how we feel that we'll be perceived otherwise. And look, the studies back this up that women, you know, this is the double bind that women mm-hmm. This is the double bind that Hillary Clinton faced during the election, um, that women who, you know, show those masculine leadership qualities of being direct and forceful and powerful, they're not well-liked. And those women who show those more feminine qualities of being nurturing and, and caring and softer, well, they're not thought of as strong leaders. So that's that's the conundrum. So, I mean, I... I know it is a conundrum, but do you think that it is really imperative that we as women, the first step is to reclaim our vocabulary and our power by using our vocabulary? Do Is it pertinent 
necessary oh, to do that? Absolutely. You know, and it's funny because I, um, I actually don't use Tammy Reese's Gmail plugin, the woman who created it, but I do scrub my email. I, I, re- I was just going to say actually, but I really do scrub my email because I find myself putting in those little words, those, you know, what people will call those shrinker words, and you take them out. And some of the advice that I've read, you know, some of the good tactics for how do you present with directness and with confidence, but also with warmth, because we want to come mm. across as warm um, in person and in email. And email is a little tough because there's, you know, essentially no tone. Right. But, um, you know, so other women will drop in a whole bunch of emojis and things like that, which can look a little silly in the workplace. Um, but you you start warm and you end warm, and in the middle you're just direct. And I think that's great advice because, you know, so if you're meeting someone in a room, you're obviously smiling and they see the body language, but then you're direct. And you can also make some sort of personal connection to, you know, how is your weekend or, you know, what are you doing this summer? Make some sort of, you know, relationship, establish some sort of warm relationship, but then be direct in between that. You sandwich it in between warmth. Yes, and I have been using this approach, if you will, since reading your book, um, very consciously, and it has made a world of difference just on the inside. You know, I'm feeling, okay, I made my point. Um, my little um, uh, little phrase would be, could we get together to talk about that project by chance? Uh-huh. You know, I, instead of like... <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I am stopping that. I'm not going to do that anymore. So that Fantastic. was. Fantastic. Yes. Good for you. And I love that. I love that um, you got some good advice from the yeah. book because that actually, that feels great. And I do feel, I like your point also that you feel good about it mm-hmm. because it's true. You start feeling a little bit different. You're, start, you're standing a little bit taller, right? You're just feeling a little bit more confident in the communication. And when, and I, you know, I'm a wordsmith and I'll reread things five times before I press send because I want to get it right and I want to make sure that I'm coming across as articulate and smart and all of those things but when you read it and you realize you take out those other smaller words the mm-hmm. just and the am I making sense and the by chances you know you're you look smarter and it doesn't look harsh right you can still end you know with a warmly you know as your signature um, there's a way to do it and by the way the guys don't overthink this stuff they, don't. they just tell you exactly what they need what they feel what you're doing wrong or right and you know they're not overthinking any of this mm-hmm. so i really do think that we overanalyze and it's what holds us back and it's what you know really inadvertently takes away our power i don't think we're looking to become less powerful i think we just do these things Consciously or a little bit unconsciously, because this is almost how we've been trained, and we're afraid to come across as too aggressive. I know, I know. And that is something that personally, and a lot of my women friends, we struggle with. We don't, and we could spend another hour talking about that. So, (laughs) but, um, but I did want to bring up, um, you were talking about reframing, you know, one of my challenges, and I know a lot of people struggle with this is ruminating, right? Yes. Um, I made I made a massive mistake at one of my jobs. <laughs> and oh my gosh, I typically would have spent probably two weeks beating myself up. But I took the advice um, from your book and some other books that I've read to just say, okay, just stop it in the tracks, right? And one yeah. of my little tactics um, was, how would a self confident person respond to that event? You know, mm, interesting. Uh huh. Yeah. And so I'm like, Oh, okay, well, I would have acknowledged the mistake. I would have 
corrected the mistake and then I would have moved on, right? Right. So can you speak a little bit to what you were talking about in the book about reframing situations? Yeah, you know, and I, and I love that idea. And it comes, you know, a lot from the confidence code and what Claire Shipman writes about too. Mm-hmm. And just how our, our minds do spin out of control. And I find myself doing this constantly. And, you know, interesting, a little sidebar, you know, this book, Fearless and Free, is not a memoir, but I do insert a lot of my own experiences and my own journey through it. And I truly lived the book. So when I say that, it means like in all of the different areas from networking to creating serendipity to all of these different things that I talk about, to the branding, to the ruminating, the confidence building, all of that I tried to basically try on and experience. And so when it comes to that whole idea of, oh, oh no, I screwed up, or, oh, God, they hate me. That's why they're not responding to my email, or, oh, my God, I've been stalking them. Now, like, they'll never talk to me ever again. Uh-huh. I do that, too, because I'm human and because you can be, you know, you can feel insecure about something and feel bad about it or feel like you really screwed up. Um, So for me, you know, it's also trying to remove myself from it. So I don't think, you know, I I, I like what you were trying to do. Like this is, you know, what a self-confident person would do. For me, it becomes almost a gender play. Mm. I try to say like, this is what my husband would Mm. do. He's like a typical guy who really does not, feel guilt. He doesn't feel, you know, he doesn't get riddled by, you know, by shame that he did something Mm. wrong at the office. He just really moves on. And he would never take it personally that someone hadn't responded to an email. Mm. And he just says, well, they're just busy or just email them again. And so for me, I really, you know, I now, and particularly because I'm shamelessly promoting my book all the time, there's a lot of rejection out there. There's a lot of going and asking people to, for favors or to do book events or, you know, can I be on this TV show or whatever you're doing. And there's a lot of rejection. And there's a lot of just feeling ignored, that you're just not hearing back. So now, really, I'll send multiple emails because I know people are busy. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking it personally, and I think this really applies to you're looking for a job, you've reached out to someone you haven't heard back, now you might feel like stupid to reach out again. Don't feel stupid. Reach out again. And maybe reach out a third time. Mm. Because people really, truly are busy. They get flooded with emails during the day, depending on how high on the totem pole they are at that job. And they may not be rejecting you personally. And time and time again, throughout this whole process, I really found that people say to me, I'm so glad you emailed me again. I was really meaning to reach out to you. I'm so glad you're now at the top of my inbox again. You are and absolutely hearing right. hearing that multiple times has just reassured me that I'm not stalking in like in a really annoying way. You can be nice also in your emails. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even starting a subject line of sorry to stalk has really generated a lot of responses <laughs> for me. I figured I've sort of like really, you know, broken, you know, cracked the nut on like the the messaging of how to even approach people multiple times and to just not take it so personally. You are so right on in my work as a nonprofit fundraiser. <laughs> It's never just one email, right? And I have found, you know, you send a message, they're non-responsive. In a couple of weeks, I circle back and, hey, just checking in on this. And nine times out of 10, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I did not reply to the first one. Let's get that meeting on the books. 
That's right. And once that starts happening, you realize, like, this is just the way of the world, you know. And, and I think women, we tend to really think that it's us. We blame ourselves because we didn't get the call back or we must have screwed up or they don't like us or we're not worthy of it. We really just, we really just beat ourselves up when we shouldn't be, when we should just we take a step out. And if we were talking to a friend and coaching a friend on this exact situation, we would say to them, just reach out again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, exactly. You've got nothing to lose. But when it comes to ourselves, we can really just feel insecure and, you know, I don't know, just go into this sort of like dark, dark place. Yeah. That's just an unhealthy place to be. So we touched on some of the great stuff about, you know, working on the inside stuff, right? Um, you also dedicated a lot of page uh, to... I'm just going to use a broad stroke generalization about the sisterhood, right? How we can um, help each other. Again, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about, you know, to a certain degree, our experiences of late have been um, more lip service than actual sisterhood activity. And so we don't know what that's all about. But I said, oh, well, I read in this book (laughs) um, (laughs) this great thing, a couple of great things that I do, uh, I started doing immediately. So I wanted to touch on a couple of those. Um, you know, the shine theory. I first yes. heard a reference to that. It occurred to me when I was getting ready to talk to you that Gail King actually talked about that several months ago, maybe even last year, regarding um, her relationship uh, with Oprah, her uh-huh. friendship. So can you uh-huh. share with our audience what that theory is? Sure. So this is this great concept that comes from a writer named Anne Friedman, who I borrowed this concept from. Um, and her, she and her really close friend, Amina Sow, who runs something awesome called Tech Lady Mafia. Um, and it's the concept that women have generally or historically have been, you know, intimidated by those other sort of badass women who seem to have it all together. And instead of trying to befriend them, you're just thinking, oh, well, I'm not going to go over to them. They're like, they must be a bitch or they must be like, they're too perfect. Therefore, you know, I don't like them. But instead, flip that on its head and realize that you should become friends with the smartest, most attractive, most fabulous women in the room or at that networking event or in the office. Because part of their, like, glow from their halo will shine on you when you become, like, when they are part of your circle. It makes you look good. And you start feeling good. There's, like, this sort of, like, mutual benefit that comes from it. Um, and it's a total, like, reversal of that we're climbing our way to the top. We're catfighting with the other ladies out there. It's just a real switch that we should be really combining forces, amplifying each other's voices, raising each other together. And that's a definitely, I've found, um, a shift in what's happening sort of culturally and in the workforce with women. You know, as I was rising through the ranks, I did not feel, I had a bunch of female bosses. And and, you know, they were lovely people, but I don't feel like anyone was helping pull me up mm. with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like maybe it's because there were just fewer places at the top. The pie was smaller. Um, I never felt, you know, inherent catfighting happening. And I worked in a lot of female-friendly, you know, populated industries like TV and news and editorial and stuff like that. But there was definitely no, like helping amplify other messaging for you from the younger women and really pushing women ahead. But today, and I really do credit millennials for this, there's definitely a sense of sisterhood and feminism, and it's really bubbled up in the past few years. 
Um, that now some of these, you know, like the, the tech lady mafia, the one I referred to with Ann Friedman's friend Amina, they've now codified this whole sort of process where they, when you go to an event, you're asking and giving. And so it's making you feel comfortable to say, hey, I could really use help with X project or X, you know, thing. And in exchange, you know, I'm looking to help you with whatever you need. Mm. So it's becoming this real sort of place where women can exchange and get help and not feeling like you're mooching all the time because you've now codified this whole process of giving and receiving. Um, and it just is part of the program, which, by the way, the guys have been doing always. <laughs> you know? Yes. Men help each other out. Good old boys network. Yeah, they've done this. And women, you know, so here's the thing. Women have also always had networks. We've always had villages, just not in the professional sense the way that men have. And that's really what's changing. And the more women feel like it's an okay thing to ask for help, and certainly we've always been givers, but now you should be asking too and telling people what it is you need from them. And I'm running into this more and more. To me, it's becoming more of the norm. And I was just at an event last night, and this woman who was actually part of this women's network that I'm on, but we'd never met in person, I I introduced myself, told her about the title of my book, and she said to me right away, what can I do for you? Mm. What can I do for you? And I literally like brought tears to my eyes. (laughs) And I was like, that is like the greatest thing you could have said to me. Thank you so much. You know, I'm so grateful. Thank you. What can I do for you? (laughs) You know, and then, and then it's like, but the guys do this. They figure out how they're going to work together. It's like, you know, it's a quid pro quo, but you know, women do this. I think that women historically have also not even liked the concept of networking because it feels so inauthentic. Right? But we're such great connectors anyway. Like, we really do bond so well. So if we even reframe what networking is Mm -hmm. and call it, like, connecting instead, you know, even that changes the whole dynamic. I liked um, your reference to the amplification method. You touched on it uh, very briefly a few moments ago. Um, But uh, can you describe that to our listeners, what that approach is? I love sure. it. I mean, so one of the things that I actually mentioned in the book, and this actually came out of the Obama White House in the, um, in the early years, and what happened was, you know, the women in the White House and the senior leadership, you know, they would be with the president, you know, at, at a table, at a meeting, and they would be largely ignored. And this is mm-hmm. something that I think women in all industries can relate to. And they realized, and they sort of like came together, they, they, they realized that they needed to support each other. So if Sarah made a point at a meeting, then Jane would say, you know, as Sarah just pointed out, or as she mentioned, or, you know, she just, she just said X. So then Sarah would get ownership over that message, and the women were helping solidify where it came from. Mm-hmm. Because what they found was that the guys would sort of almost like usurp the idea. Yes, you know, yes. The women were left silent. The president was rarely calling on women. So they wanted to amplify each other's message. They basically were just repeating what someone said to allow that ownership to go back to that woman. And what interestingly happened was that the president started paying attention to the women in the room, and he started calling on them more. Interesting. So this concept of this whole amplification has been, you know, also sort of, um, I would say almost like inherited or be, become beloved by so many of the women's groups that I'm now a part of, where our job is to amplify each other's messages. 
So part of this listserv that I'm on, and uh, there are several women from my listserv who actually made it into my book, is you say, hey, I just wrote this article in, you know, on time.com. Can you guys help you know, tweet it out? Can you push yes. the message out? And they do. It's become a part of what you do to support other people. So whether that's, you know, and it can be across industry, by the way. It's, you know, you're a lawyer who just got recognized or is speaking at a conference or the, you know, actor who just got a part or, you know, the woman who's the founder of a startup who is, you know, just raised a new round of seed funding or she's just coming out of the gate and she wants people to know what she's doing. You know, it's all across industries, but it's just letting people know what you're doing and amplifying that message. Well, as I mentioned, I was going to ask you 20,000 questions, <laughs> and we were not going to have a, enough time to do that, and we've only, you know, skimmed, you know, the surface of what great stuff is in the book. I mean, it's it's a combination, I think, of um, really digging deep and then looking at how to, you know, bolster your own self-confidence, really being open to saying, you know, it might look like this, but actually, here's an opportunity here, if you really reframe it, as you mentioned. Right. Um, and then how we can actually build upon that energy to really make a huge difference uh, for all women um, who are, you know, trying to look at, is this uh, by choice or maybe not by choice, uh, what their options are professionally. Um, I do have a, a final question for you. Sure. Um, so let's say you're in a coffee shop and you're eavesdropping um, and you hear a couple of women talking about, you know, s some struggle, some professional struggle, you know, what to do. And they happen to notice you're listening and they invite you into the conversation. Uh -huh. um, and I know this is going to be a hard question, but what would be, you know, this first response? This just happened this morning. No way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I've been this having all the time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What, tell, can you tell me what happened there? Um, sure. Well, I mean, she actually, the woman, to be totally transparent, the woman overheard a conversation I was having with another woman talking about how I was just speaking in Washington, D.C. Um, yesterday, and I was speaking to a group of female attorneys, um, most of whom, well, actually almost all of whom are out of a job because they had worked at the Department of Justice, mm. and they worked at the White House under the Obama administration, and now they don't know what to do. And she said, I'm an attorney, too. I work in New Jersey. I worked under Governor Christie, um, not to get all political, but, you know, there's reason she was like a social justice attorney, and there's good reason why she's no longer working for the, the New Jersey um, political machine. Um, and she's also trying to figure out what it is she's going to do next. So, um, I mean, these things come up all the time, but I didn't even hear your whole question. <laughs> well, I was going to say, if someone, you know, invited you into the conversation, you know, what would you say to them? What would be the f a nugget of wisdom, like a first step or um, encouragement? What would you say to someone who's like, you know, I'm faced with this big thing. What am I going to do with my life as far as professional choices? What would you say to that person? I think first thing is, what do you want to do and what are you good at? Now, a lot of people don't know what they want to do, right? That's why they're stuck and that's why they're, you know, noodling over a whole bunch of different things. But what are you really good at? And then what can maybe you apply those skills to, to monetize them, you know, to figure out a way to that, you know, works today if like, if your industry has really transformed so much that maybe your job doesn't really exist anymore, um, which is the case with, 
the women from Department of Justice, their jobs are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what is it that you can be doing with what it is that you do well and what it is that you like to do? And starting at that place, I think, is the, the, the way to get started. That was Wendy Sachs, author of Fearless and Free, How Smart Women Pivot and Relaunch Their Careers. You can learn more about Wendy and her work as an author, speaker, and media strategist by visiting her website, Wendy Sachs, that's S-A-C-H-S dot com. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Broadband. I'm Denise Kowalczyk. Have a great day.